Hey, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect. I'm here because I want you to let go of perfection so you can be your most authentic, happiest self. Because I want you to find more joy. Every episode, we're going to look at how we can be a little braver in one part of our lives. And today, we're going to talk about how we can brave up your parenting. It is impossible to be the perfect parent. And as women, we're always beating ourselves up about every little single imperfection. If you have a kid, I want you to try to let go of that. To know that every parent, we're just doing our best. And we're making a ton of mistakes along the way. And a lot of those things, they don't really matter that much. Like having fresh baked cookies at the school picnic. I want you to let yourself be lazy and just go get the store-bought ones. Because you know what? They're just as good. No shame, though, if bacon brings you joy. Find those other things that don't matter so much. And hey, if you have a partner, maybe it's time for them to take on a little more childcare. Don't be afraid to ask for what you need. Now, joining me today to talk about bravery and parenting is the incredible Shannon Watts. She's the founder of Moms Demand Action, and it's one of the most prominent gun violence prevention groups in the country. And Shannon... Well, she's been called the NRA's worst nightmare because of that incredible work. With her comes an army of moms fighting back against the powerful gun lobby, blocking the hallways of Congress with strollers, and helping elect candidates that are dedicated to stopping gun violence. And recently, Shannon also published her first book, Fight Like a Mother, how a grassroots movement took on the gun lobby and why women will change the world. She's also the mother of, yes, five kids. She's a busy mom, and she's trying to change the world. So I figured she'd probably have some good advice for us about parenting. And I wasn't disappointed. So you started um, Moms Demand Action after the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. And I wanted to talk to you about, like, how does being a mother drive your work against gun violence? You know, when I was sitting in my house uh, in December of 2012 in Indiana, my visceral reaction to that horrific tragedy was as a mom, that I couldn't believe six educators and 20 children had been slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. And when I decided to get off the sidelines the next day, and it was mainly because pundits and politicians were on my TV saying the solution was actually more guns, that simply 400 million guns in the hands of civilians wasn't enough. The thing I hearkened back to was Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was so influential when I was a teen in the 80s. Um, They made the irresponsibility of getting intoxicated and driving family and friends. Um, They made that, those people became social pariahs. And I felt the same thing had to do with irresponsibility with guns. And yet when I went online to look for something like MAD and gun safety, I couldn't find anything. Mm. I could find think tanks run by men or some one-off state and city organizations, again, mostly run by men. I wanted to be part of a badass army of women, just like MAD. And so that's, that's really what caused me to start the Facebook page. Right before we started this podcast, my, my son was here at work because we were doing something together and I was like peeling him off me to be like, I gotta go! <laughs> um, and... You know, 
you're trying to make the world a better place. I'm trying to make a world a better place with Girls Who Code. And, like, it's a lot, right? Like, you have this huge, demanding job. And it often requires you to kind of be away from home, away from your kids. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with a ton of mom guilt. And it's gotten worse as my son has gotten older and he can talk and tell me how mad he is that I'm leaving um, or that I'm going to do something without him. And I know that your kids are now out of the house, but, you know, you took on this work with your children being there. And how have you struggled, if at all, with the fact that, like, with mom guilt? You know, when I started uh, Moms Demand Action, my kids ranged in age from elementary through college. And... I went from really being there every second of every day to being gone a lot, Um, more busy than I ever had been in my career, even though I'm a volunteer. And that was a huge change in our lives. And there was a lot of guilt. But looking back, and, and I think it's so important for moms to hear this who are in the thick of it, because all five of my kids are grown now, they're in college or or working, they don't remember any of that. That's not what they think about when they think about their childhoods. They don't think about uh, when I started Moms to Me in Action and I was missing in action. I think they think about how their dad and their stepdad filled in. They think about um, their pride in my taking on something that I felt passionately about. Um, They've never said to me, you know, that really changed our lives in a bad way. And It's important to remember that guilt just reminds you that that's a priority, but it doesn't mean it's real. It doesn't mean that anyone is suffering. It's just really that part of our brain that says, pay attention. But most moms are good moms. They they can do both things at once. They can be passionate and work outside the home or be involved in activism or volunteer and still be a great mom. Do you feel like that's something, because your organization is so dependent, too, on, like, moms using their voices, right, on on parents, like, activating themselves? And um, do you feel like it's something that you have to talk to in terms of, like, their guilt that they feel, like, I can't come to this protest or this event or do this phone bank, right, because I got to be at home doing blah, 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 blah? Oh, absolutely. I I have conversations all the time with the volunteers um, who are trying to figure out how to manage something they feel so passionately about, right? And keep in mind, a lot of of the women who come into our organization, we're not just moms, we're mothers and others, but many of them have families and they have partners and some of them even have jobs and they have to figure out how to juggle all of that. Um, So those are conversations we have. Here's what I always say. All activism is a marathon, not a sprint. Our system is set up for incremental change, but it's also a relay race. So you have to hand the baton over when other things take priority in your life. And if that means you need to spend more time with your family or with your partner um, or your job, then then do that. The work will still be here when you get back. And you know, I learned that because um, I talk about this in my book, Fight Like a Mother, that in the throes of Moms Demand Action, um, there was a lot going on probably three years in, and my daughter at college developed an eating disorder. And there would be times that I would be driving to the airport for a very important event, and I would have to turn around and come back home. And I would say, look, my daughter needs me. This is my priority. There are other people who can do this work. And I would say that is the other piece of this, which is often I think women feel they're perfectionists, and they think, 
either no one can do the work as well, or they feel guilty about giving the work to someone else. And that is a recipe for burnout. Mm, Jan, that's so powerful hearing you say that because I was just talking about this earlier today. Like I had, um, I had recurrent miscarriages and I didn't do what you did. Like I would have a miscarriage, I'd walk out of a doctor's office, two hours later I'd be standing in front of a thousand people giving a speech mm. for Girls Who Code. And that became normal over the course of eight years. And I never actually found the courage to say, no, I I can't do this anymore. And when I think back at it, I think, again, a lot of it is because of my perfectionism and not wanting to let anybody down and to people please and not feel like I was being a failure. How did you learn that? Did you watch someone do that? Did you, was that it? Like, how did you, because for a lot of moms and activists and women and, and folks I talk to, that is not typical. No. And look, I had a 15 year career where I didn't learn all of these lessons. I can say being a volunteer, leading other volunteers, you learn a lot of different lessons. And one is that you're never going to succeed with an organization. And I think this applies to other realms, including the corporate world, unless you trust people. You know, I had to trust perfect strangers that I had never talked to or seen in my entire life, but who wanted to help me in those early days. Web developers, litigators, policy specialists, organizers, all of these people who wanted to play a part in getting Moms to Man Action off the ground. And if I had tried to micromanage all of them or keep all the work for myself, it just never would have never would have happened. It never would have taken off. And I think that was an important lesson to me because there's so much work that needs to be done. We can't do all of it. But also that self-care is a huge part of activism, especially depending on, you know, the activism you're doing, if it can be traumatizing. Uh, And so to take time out and to reflect and to take care of yourself, that's the only way you stay in this for the long term. So what are your strategies for that? Because I think most women are really bad at self-care. Like I always say, like, you can't be brave if you're tired. Mm. And every woman I know is exhausted. So what are your strategies for that? I get outside a lot. Uh, I try to go on a few mile walk or run every single day um, or a hike. And every night without fail, I take a bubble bath. And that is my time to sit in the tub and no one can bother me and the door is locked and I try not to be on my phone and I'll catch up on the magazines, you know, that I have accumulating over the weeks. And it's a way to recharge. Uh, But I also think there's something to doing work that helps other people that takes your mind off of yourself too. If you can find Mm -hmm. that aspect of the work, Uh, you know, I was talking about my daughter with an eating disorder. And one thing one of her therapists said was find something outside of yourself to focus on because it will take away from you focusing on yourself and, and either the bad things you're going through or the anxiety you feel. And so I do, I do see volunteerism as a respite as long as I'm taking care of myself. I haven't heard it put that way. That's really powerful. What do you, like, what does the bubble bath do for you? It feels a little bit like a very mini break. Um, You know, I have been doing this work as a volunteer now for seven years, every day of the week. uh, And there are days when I wake up and there's been a horrific shooting tragedy and it's, you know, coming in over my phone. And I spend the next several weeks doing television and interviews and traveling and to get 
that respite where you can find it, to seek solace in even the smallest moments, um, listening to podcasts, like I said, taking a bath, taking a walk. If you can see that as a break and you really can disconnect even during the smallest breaks, I think they accumulate. Mm. I mean, you just talked about your phone. I have a real problem with that. It's really hard for me to detach myself from my phone. And like, I've almost started implementing like, like when I wake up in the morning, I got to walk my dog before I can actually open my phone. Like little things like that have actually helped me. But given the fact that you're in your volunteer work, like it feels like any minute, there could be another school shooting. So how have you been able to kind of really be able to turn it off? (laughs) Well, the phone is certainly an issue, and I think it it is for many people. Um, You know, my husband and I vowed when we married to go to therapy together every two weeks, regardless of what was going on in our lives, that we would make that Mm. commitment. And the phone comes up more than I would like it to, because, um, you know, there are times when... In in the therapy session. Yes, in the therapy sessions. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not my husband's phone, it's my phone. Uh, Because a lot of what I do does involve social media, certainly having a presence on Twitter and Instagram, and you have to keep up with that, but also the news and the things that are breaking and email and all of it. And so we did actually um, implement some boundaries where, you know, I am not on my phone in bed or I try to not be on my phone unless there's a crisis while we're watching television together. And I do think you have to set up those boundaries. Um, And I I think also he is more accepting in that that doesn't mean that I don't want to be with him or that I'm I'm purposely distracting myself. Um, So it's a give and take. But it is hard to turn off activism that involves what seem like daily shooting tragedies in this country. You know, 100 Americans are shot and killed every day. So you really can't turn it off. And I also feel like part of my role is sharing those stories with other people in America so they know what is happening, so they know that there's a crisis and that they need to act. Um, and I'm also an empath. So all of that combined um, can can mean that sometimes I feel a little bit overwhelmed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's really hard. Like I just was like on another plane, and I feel like I've been on two planes a week for three hundred past three hundred sixty five days, and I was almost feeling like I was going to have a panic attack. Right, like I was just done. And sometimes I find like I start the year saying I'm going to have real clear nose, and these are the boundaries, and this is what I'm going to do, and then I always end the year feeling enormously um, depleted. I often do that too. Uh, I always say I'm going to say no, and I probably say yes more than I say no. And I do think that can result in burnout for sure. It's also a skill set, I think, for women to be able to pick and choose what makes sense and what's a good use of their time. I want to help everyone. And that can mean I am stretched too thin. And I do think that is a really valuable lesson for women to to feel okay saying no. It doesn't mean you're not nice. It it just means that you have to be smart about your time to protect yourself and to make sure that you can go the distance. I also think it's also about we're so used to working so damn hard, mm. right? And so and we think if I work really hard, then I'll be recognized, <laughs> and then the thing I'm trying to do will will end gun violence. We will teach every girl to code, right? And and I think that 
what I realize the older I get is like, I don't know if there's an output for work and then outcome. You, you know what I mean? There's a direct relationship between that. And I think men understand that. Oof. And so they really figure out kind of how can I do the, the barest minimum, right? Yeah, my husband once said to me when I started Moms to Men Action, even if I had a horrific illness, I would not spend as much time trying to cure it as you are trying to address something <laughs> you've never been impacted by. And that's true. But there also, you were talking about how men kind of figured out how to do the bare minimum. I think they're given that ability, right? We allow them in society to do the bare minimum and still to be successful and be praised. And I do think women just have to work harder. And we know that mm. in order to be successful. Yeah. Yeah, I go back and forth on that. I, th I know that that's true, but I also know it's not serving us. And mm -hmm. so I really want to figure out like what the hack is. I think it's it's finding a sisterhood to share the workload. At least that's yeah. that's been my solution. Hundred percent, and and sharing knowledge and information. Yeah. I mean, like, I know you you just have a, a book come out. I just had my book come out, and I learned a lot in the process of like how to market and what you need to do and how many events you have to do and do you really should you really do a book tour and like I just say to women all the time like, hey, if you're gonna write a book, call me. Mm -hmm. like, I just want to download to you everything I learned, all the mistakes I made, so you don't do the same thing. And you know what's funny as we're talking too, it feels like. What you're doing now is really what you were put on this earth mm. to do. And I feel that way about Girls Who Code, too. And I think that in many ways, I may have less guilt than some of my friends who haven't found, like, their calling yet. And do you feel like those two are related, mm. right? That, like, it's easier to manage guilt when you're actually doing the thing that you love? I think that is so, such an interesting point. I had never thought of it that way. Because... When I was working in the corporate world, it was something I was interested in and good at, but it wasn't something I was necessarily passionate about. And now all the skills that I learned, you know, when, when they talk about doing something well for 10,000 hours makes you an expert. I mean, I, I wrote at least 10,000 hours of press releases. And those communication skills have served me so well in this new role, which I am passionate about and which I do feel, to your point, like, this must be why I'm here. Um, I think that you could never imagine stepping away from it. So to have guilt doesn't make a ton of sense because you're not going to give it up. Guilt implies that you're considering not doing it. And that was never an option for me. It was always, how do I make sure this works? How do I balance all of this? So I have a new baby in the house and I'm totally trying to figure out how to be <laughs> a parent to more than one kid. While I'm so excited, I'm also really nervous. Uh, also, given the fact that my son is still co-sleeping with me and he's almost five, and I don't want any more people in my bed, <laughs> I'm incredibly excited to be having another child, but totally nervous, right? Because I feel like I'm barely making it with one, and I feel like the second one's going to like tip me over the edge. Um, what do you wish you knew about having more than one kid? Oh, well, so I'm an only child, and I have three biological children and two stepchildren. And I think that every each one of them is so different, and there is not just sort of a standard way to parent. Um, I wish I had been more thoughtful about their specific personalities. I think I had a very one-size-fits-all approach that is immediately sort of blown out of the water because it doesn't work. And that, in retrospect, I think can cause friction with your kids if you try to raise each one of them the exact same way. And it, it is interesting to see even now as adults how very different they are. That's powerful. 
So your youngest kid just went off to college, mm-hmm. right? And I know that's probably really exciting, yay, <laughs> but also incredibly scary. Like, is there anything you feel like you need to be brave about in terms of that? You know, I will say that I was looking forward to Sam going to college. My, He's the only boy and the youngest of five. Uh, I had a book coming out. I knew I was going to be traveling a lot. And you talked about that mom guilt. You know, I felt like, okay, I can go on the road and not feel guilty. Um, but then when he was gone, there was just this overwhelming sense of grief, especially like when I would be in the house alone or be down by his bedroom. And I, I was shocked by that. Um, it is kind of interesting and wonderful to be an empty nester because I can do really whatever I want whenever I want. And at the same time, it's a, such a new chapter that there feels like there's a little bit of mourning that goes along with it, that that, that whole episode in my life of, of kids and raising kids is closed. Um, never over, but what I always say is also that when kids are older, the, the problems are still there. They're just more expensive and usually involve the law. Um, so, you know, having adult children is, is an interesting uh, mix in its own. But I think just this idea of, oh, I'm really middle-aged now. I really am. So, you know, so many of my students are impacted by growing up in a world where they have to do shooter drills. And I didn't grow up ever having to do that. And I don't think no. you did either. Um, my son, Sean, is going into kindergarten next year. And I'm terrified. You know, he's a really emotional kid. And I know that the first time he has to do one, it's going to scare him. What, you know, what do I need to be brave about this, this next phase? I rarely do an event where a woman doesn't come up to me, usually crying, and talk about the impact that lockdown drills have had on her family. We don't take positions on things until we have data. We're a pretty moderate, nonpartisan organization. So just recently, we actually took a position on lockdown drills because we looked at data and the data showed that these drills are not effective necessarily, uh, that people who go through the drills seem less prepared than those who haven't. And also the data shows that these drills cause trauma for kids, sleeplessness, anxiety, depression, worsening school performance. And so we did come up with a position, which is that we don't think kids should have to go through them. If adults and teachers want to drill, that's up to them. Um, Not everyone has that choice to opt out. So what I would recommend to all parents is that they know the tone and the content of these drills. You know, we've seen these drills across the country where um, students have to pretend they're dead with fake blood on them in the hallway. Strangers are hired to rattle the doors of classrooms without letting faculty or students know. Um, Even in Indiana, they've shot teachers with rubber bullets so they feel the adrenaline of what a mass shooting would be like. These are obscene, they're perverse, they're making money for drill companies. And so I would say, if nothing else, at least understand when these drills are going to take place and what the content of them is. So how can listeners follow you and support your work? Anyone can get involved. And again, we're mothers and others. So if you text the word READY to 64433, someone will get in touch with you and help you get involved where you live. Um, you can follow me at fightlikeamother.org or on Twitter at Shannon R. Watts. 
Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for chatting. I think that this idea of balancing being a mom and, and trying to change the world is really powerful and important conversation to have. So thank you for having it with me. Thank you for having me and thank you for all you're doing too. That was Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action, a group working to prevent gun violence. In just a minute, I'm going to delve into questions that you've been asking about parenting. So just sit tight. So are you looking for something to listen to in between episodes of Brave Not Perfect? Hungry for some more courageous feminist voices? Tune in to Popaganda, Bitch Media's twice-monthly feminist pop culture podcast. Popaganda's glamour season is streaming now. It'll explore feminist fashion, witchy beauty rituals, the death of diet culture, and more. This show is hosted by the feminist writer, editor, and digital media superstar, Carmen Rios. She's spent over 10 years talking back from the feminist front lines. Propaganda features feminist activists, thinkers, and legends alike. Each episode grapples with the urgency of a feminist future, and it charts a course towards cultural change, which is what we desperately need. Don't just sit pretty. Subscribe to Propaganda today, wherever you get your feminist fix, to make sure you don't miss a minute of the glamorous stuff yet to come. And now we're going to turn to the advice portion of the show with my incredible producer, Ashley. Hey, Rashma. Listeners have been sending you in such good questions from social media and over email, and I'm so excited to share some of them with you. I love it. Let's get started. So our first question today is coming from someone trying to decide when to have kids. They want to know how you knew that you were ready to become a parent, especially as someone who's got such a strong focus on your career. Well, I actually just got pregnant (laughs) the first time, and I I didn't really plan it. Um, I ended up miscarrying that pregnancy, but that experience was like really jarring for me because it also made me really realize, God, I really want, I really want to have a kid and I want to have a kid now. And, and so that kind of like started my journey, but I was definitely of the generation that were having kids later. You know, I had my first baby when I was 39 years old. Um, I didn't have start trying to have kids till I was in my, my mid thirties. And I was probably at a point in my life where like, you know, I had, you know, taken that big first risk in running for office. You know, Nahal and I uh, were financially uh, semi-stable, and I'd made a dent in my student loans, and I was clear about what I felt like my career path was. And all of those things made me really feel like I was ready uh, to bring a, a life into our family. So what advice would you give for someone else looking at that and trying to make that decision for themselves. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it is a little complicated. I think we have a lot more information today in terms of fertility, right? And like, quite frankly, the role that age sometimes plays in this. Um, I know a lot more younger women are like getting their eggs frozen, right? To kind of preserve a little bit of time. And so I think you have to think about that. And I think you have to talk to your doctor about that. And I think you have to see kind of where you are physically and from a health perspective on your fertility journey. Second, I think like where you are financially really does matter. Kids are expensive, especially, you know, quite frankly, here in New York City, they're real expensive. And so like, are you ready for that? Because like, I know my parents, like when they had us, they weren't, and it caused a lot of stress, you know, Mm -hmm. in the family. 
Um, you know, I think the third thing is, is that, you know, if you are having a baby with somebody else, do you have a strong foundation in your relationship, right? Sometimes people need to be together for a bit to kind of figure out their rhythm and flow. Um, if you're a single person who's having a child on your own, do you feel like you have a network of people who can like support you? Mm-hmm. So I do think that like there, there are some real questions that come into place in thinking about whether you're ready. Um, and it's okay, I think, to have a little bit of anxiety about them. And it's okay to take your time in thinking them through. Totally. That was some really good advice, Rashma. Whew, this next one sounds tough. Ugh. So one of our listeners wrote in asking for tips on how they can navigate advocating for themselves when they're breastfeeding. This listener wants to convince their boss that they should be able to work from home while they're breastfeeding because they're struggling a lot with long public commutes and having to pack everything and just kind of lug it around. And so do you have any thoughts on how they might approach this? That is the hard one. I think you ought to ask for what you want. You know, we live in a society that encourages women to breastfeed, but then we don't give them any support to allow them to actually go and do that. So if you're feeling like the way for you to basically satisfy this, that the fact that you want to breastfeed your child for, you know, as many months or weeks or as you you want, that the way for you to be able to do that is to work from home, then you need to ask for what you want from your boss. Yeah, and I think one thing you can do is maybe, you know, ask your boss to try it out for a week. Show them that you can be productive. You're still going to get your work done. Everything's going to be good. And then when, you know, there are big meetings or whatever, say you'll you'll be coming in for those kinds of things. And then if it doesn't work out, like I think the other thing is where, where Ashley and I work, you know, there's a breastfeeding room. So you can store all of your materials, you know, because there's a lot of materials, right, there. And so you're not lugging them back and forth. So the other thing is, is what is the support system for you at the office to help you be successful in your dream to want to breastfeed? Um, and, and, if, and if you can't work from home, then, then ask for that. Right. And I think that like, you know, you might not be able to swing working from home every day, but maybe you can do two or three days a week, or maybe you can do Fridays. Maybe there's some kind of compromise you can come up with your boss if they're not willing to accommodate what you're asking for. I really hope it works out. And I hope that like even having the conversation, irregardless of how it works out, um, makes you feel braver and prouder for you for asking for what you want. I think it's really important for us. Totally. Okay, Reshma, I think this one's going to hit really, really close to home for you. Um, one person wrote in asking, how can they explain to their children that they have to travel for work? You know, it's so funny. My, my mother um, used to always complain that she had to go to work. But it was because I realized later in life that she was feeling guilty about leaving us, but she actually loved her job. I mean, she literally just retired and she's like, you know, in her mid 70s. Whoa. Yeah, that's how much she loved her job, right? But literally when I was growing up, Ashley, she'd be like, I'm so sorry, I have to leave you. I don't want to go to work, blah, 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 blah. So I always thought, wow, she hates her job. But as I got older, I realized that that wasn't true. She was just saying what she thought she had to say. So I decided that I wasn't going to do that with Sean. That when he would cry when I was going to work or I had to travel on a trip, that I would explain to him that I'm going to miss him, but that I love what I do. And I think it's made all of the difference. Because as people will tell you, the mi- even if they're throwing, screaming, crying, throwing a tantrum, the minute you walk out of the door, they're totally fine. It's us, right? We're the ones who have that guilt. Um, and so just just remember that. Like, they're going to be fine. This is about you. 
That's that's really smart. Um, something else I thought of, and I'm not a parent, so I'm super unqualified <laughs> to give advice, um, but is maybe explaining to them that like you're going to work to help support them and that this is part of making sure they have a home, making sure they have clothes, making sure they have food. And, you know, they still might not be thrilled about it, but if you can explain it to them in terms of of how important it is to take care of them, like that might be another avenue to pursue. Yeah. The other thing I think is so interesting is like when I think about my, my my partner, Nahal doesn't have that same guilt. Sean could be like on the floor throwing a tantrum and Nahal's like, see ya, right? Like, and so um, in many ways, like my husband's been a role model, model for me in terms of trying to like take that guilt away from myself um, and to be present with my work and my travel and the thing that I'm trying to do. Because my son's going to be fine. Totally. Because what I used to do was like I would take a red eye or I would reschedule my whole life um, because I was feeling guilty and I would get sick. Oof. You know, because you don't want to take double red eyes. That's mm-hmm. not good for anybody. And so pay attention to that. I think it's really, really, really important that you don't find yourself doing things that are bad for your health because you're trying to resolve your guilt. Because reminder, your child doesn't care. They don't, they're just fine. So that is unfortunately all the time that we have today, but y'all wrote in with some really good questions. And please keep sending them our way. Like I love hearing about your questions and the things that you're struggling with. You can send me an email at bravenotperfect at girlswhocode.com or you can leave a voicemail at 347-76-BRAVE. I might just answer your questions on the show. Did you enjoy today's show? I would so appreciate it if you left a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Just a sentence or two is perfect. Those reviews help us get the word out so we can help more women choose bravery over perfection. Coming up, our next episode is going to be a little different. I'm going to open up about one of the biggest challenges in my life and have a conversation with the amazing angel who's in my life right now, Amber, who is about to give birth to my child. My connection with you is stronger than I feel like it is with the baby, which is hard to understand for a lot of people because I'm physically connected to the baby. But I'm so excited for you guys and so happy. It's hard to explain because it's it doesn't this pregnancy doesn't feel like my own pregnancy. A new episode of Brave Not Perfect comes out every other Tuesday. See you soon. Hey, I'm Ashley. I'm the executive producer of Brave Not Perfect. Tanya Zaparonic and Charlotte Stone are my fabulous co-producers, and we of course couldn't do it without support from the amazing Deborah Singer and Jenny Josephson. I also want to give a big shout out to Bill Lance, who mixed and mastered today's episode. We've got an extra special show lined up for you in two weeks, and I'm getting to work on it right now. Make sure you're subscribed to Brave Not Perfect so you get that episode and I'll see you soon. Bye.